welcome. Those of us joining online, thank you for they're here. For those of you that are here in uh, person today, uh, a lot of our questions for the last 15 minutes actually been about our, our ministry partners. And so why don't we pray for them and uh, pray for some folks in our church that we also mentioned is on our prayer list and our time together before we, uh, before we jump into our discussion today. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can be here today and, and that uh, whether we're here uh, in body or in spirit watching with us online, I'm, I'm just grateful for the gathered church uh, as we continue to talk about developing a biblical worldview. And uh, would you help us today in that discussion? We do pray, God, for those uh, partners that we have um, that, uh, that are experiencing the same kind of frustrations our church is in, in some different ways and in some even more so uh, because of greater restrictions uh, in Africa and in Philadelphia and on the Eastern Shore. And so, God, we would just ask um, that, you would, that you would bring an end to this. Um, God, that um, not only for this reason, but, but uh, for this, and, and in addition to uh, the preservation of life and health and in our world. So God, would you work uh, to continue to, to bring an end to this pandemic uh, so that we can return to some of the places where we proclaim the gospel and so that our workers can be free uh, to continue to plant churches and to uh, reach people with the gospel of Jesus. We pray for those who are on our prayer list that we mentioned um, uh, there, there are several facing surgery this week, some who are sick, some that have uh, coronavirus within our church right now, um, and then also some that just have been battling very long-term health issues. And we just pray for each of those. We recognize that you know them and that you are sovereign over them and that your hand can touch uh, them. And we pray for ways for your church to be an encouragement to them during this time. Uh, again, would you bless uh, th- this hour that we spend together in Jesus' name. Amen. So we, our subject has been, um, or is, for, for this three-month equip session, uh, biblical worldview. And we spent the first week talking about what is a biblical worldview and then how do we develop a, a biblical worldview. And, and what, I have, what I've tried to do is in, interject some balance in that I recognize some of you uh, like some parts of my teaching better than others. Um, when some of you really get interested uh, when we're walking through Scripture, hopefully everybody gets interested when we're walking through Scripture, um, but when I'm just moving very fast through, through a lot of Scripture, showing, for instance, like we did when we talked about some of the big-ticket issues within a biblical worldview, like, God is creator and man is sinful and um, that, that we, show, we did a lot of scripture on those. Um, but I also think it is helpful to us occasionally um, to, to, to think about this in a, from a broader perspective um, that doesn't necessarily either, sometimes it's historical, sometimes it's even philosophical uh, perspective that kind of gives us a more well-rounded understanding of the subject matter. Now, we don't ever do this on Sunday morning. Occasionally, I'll illustrate a point on Sunday morning in a way like that. Uh, but obviously, our, our goal on Sunday morning is walk verse by verse through books of the or through uh, books of the Bible and 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 explain the scriptures. And so, on Wednesday nights, I feel a little more freedom to interject that. Um, but I, I try to spread those things out. So I did that in the first week uh, when we tried to define a biblical worldview. 
And it was more of a philosophical understanding of what is a biblical or what is a worldview. What, what, is that, what does that even mean? Remember, we compared it to that, to all those lenses in front of your eyes and, and everything in your life has contributed to it. And then, you know, the biblical worldview is the one that doesn't replace all of those, but helps, helps to clarify which one of those are correct and which one of them aren't. Helps you to see your world better uh, from, from the way that God would intend us to see it through his word and then helps us to react to it. Um, today, I'm going to kind of return to that same idea, and I warned you of this last week. I'm going to kind of return to some of that same idea tonight. Um, and what I want us to see is not, we're, we're, I told you last week we were going to go back in history. We're not going really far back in history. Sometimes I've gone hundreds and hundreds of years back in history on Wednesday nights to kind of walk through some things. We're not going anything more than maybe a hundred years or so. Um, but, but I want us to go back and think about how has our culture changed over the last hundred years? Because there's been significant change in our culture in the last hundred years. And then not only how has the culture changed, but how has the church then adapted to that? What does the church do because they, we now live in a culture that doesn't feel like it's home, okay? And, and we're going to present some, some ideas there. And, and really, a lot of these fall along denominational lines and denominational distinctives and even within individual churches and sometimes individual Christians as to how you think about this. And none of these models are perfect, and that's really ultimately what we're going to see. Uh, but the reason I want to talk about how the church relates to culture is because when we, in the, in the coming weeks, get into some individual subjects, like when we approach the subject of sexuality from a biblical worldview, and we start thinking about gender, and we start thinking about homosexuality, and we start thinking about some of those things, um, it, it's important for us to have already answered this question. Is this something the church should deal with or not? And if it is, how should the church deal with it, right? So understanding the models... And understanding where, where I'm going to hope we end up, it's kind of in a, in a, not necessarily a purely central position, but, but, but in a position that's pulled towards the middle of these models, which I think is, is the biblical place for us to end up. It's going to really help us guide it. Now, if you were here four years ago on Wednesday night, it was a, probably a January, I think it, I'm almost certain it was, January of 2016, I taught a very similar session to this. Some of this is actually a little different, but I taught a similar session to this because I was dealing on the church and politics. And I had a Wednesday night on culture and how the church relates to culture uh, because it, answer, it really begged that same question. When we were, if we're going to talk about politics, it begs the question, how should church relate to it? But the same is true for worldview. Now, here's what I know. A lot of you were new in the last four years, or you're joining us online. You've not ever seen any of that, and that was before we were putting our Wednesday night stuff online. Or you probably forgot it anyway. And so it's been four years, right? It's been an entire presidency. And so maybe a lot has happened, and we can revisit some of this subject again, although maybe only about half of this is the same stuff that I covered then. But if you hear me say something, you're like, I've heard him say that before. That, that's when it was, okay? So let's just think in history. How, what's the historical movement of culture looked like? And I'm, talk, I'm not talking about worldwide culture, by the way. We, we've got to address the one in which we live. So we're talking about American culture, Western civilization. A lot of this would also be true of European culture, at least Western European culture. Um, 
often it is quicker. So maybe you've heard it said, like, if you want to see what your city is going to be like in 20 years, you know, look at a Western European city. If you want to see what it's going to look like in 10 or uh, in 10 years, look at New York City, because New York changes faster than the rest of America, but Europe changes faster than, than, um, than New York does. And so that, uh, so some of this is certainly true about, about Europe and some of these some of these people we're actually going to talk about tonight are actually Europeans, and we're dealing with some of these things before we did. And we're seeing this last if you consider yourself a, a, a person, a child of the Southeast, right? Virginia, Virginia certainly was at one point part of the Southeast. I'm not sure today if we still categorize it that or not. We've become such a melting pot here in Virginia. Um, but uh, I grew up in the Deep South. And culture changed last and still does in a lot of ways in, in the deep south or in the southeast. Um, and so some of this is just catching up to some places, right? Even though it began decades ago and others. So it was really in the early 1900s, so around 100 years ago, that we saw this, this lurch to the left, a, a leftward move in cultural establishments, all right. Now, when I say left, it's always important for me to remind you, I'm not only or even always talking about politics. When people use the term left and right, people's minds automatically go to politics because we are a politics-obsessed culture right now, right? Everything has to do with politics. That, that, that's not what this is necessarily about, even though some of this does tend to run along political lines. But there was a move away from so maybe another way to say it, a move away from Orthodox Christian teaching and understanding within the cultural establishments. And we saw it first in those places, meaning this, universities were the first places to move. Now, it wasn't necessarily the early 1900s where universities began to move, all right? Uh, universities began to move left uh, during the Enlightenment, but there was, there was this big, really big jump to the left, right? Um, uh, so you, you saw that in education, it started to filter down from the universities into, you know, um, high schools and, and further down in that. It, it was in the news media, newspapers, print journalism. Uh, it was even in publishing books that were being published. So, so we saw this move. Um, and while they rejected, while in the main, these uh, these cultural establishments began to reject Christian doctrine, okay, um, like creation, um, like um, the, ex- the exclusivity of the gospel and, and the need for justification by faith through grace, and, or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And um, they, they began to reject a lot of that. They maintained Christian morality, so in the, in the early, in the first half, really, and even spilling past the first half of the 19th century, you saw um, the, the establishment of Western civilization reject doctrine just out of hand. The, they, they rejected the idea that the Bible was true. They rejected the idea of historical Jesus. Um, they, they rejected all of that, but maintained a, a, a picture of Christianity, because things like modesty and the nuclear family um, were all still 
hard work, right? These were all still valued within the establishment. So they, they held on to a, what looked Christian, which is why people look back on that period and think, well, we were still very much a Christian nation at that time. The truth is we weren't. Statistics actually don't bear that out at all. Um, it just, we looked that way because the establishment had only rejected the doctrine. They hadn't necessarily rejected the morality yet. All right. So churches, Christians in the early part, uh, through the middle part of the 1900s felt at home in culture, not because everyone in the culture was a Christian. I mean, you just got to look at the 1920s and Look at what happened in the 1920s, and you can kind of recognize that not all of these people are Christians, obviously, right? Um, they, they weren't Christians, but they maintained an air of morality that, that was a mirror image of Christian culture. And so Christians didn't really feel a need to engage culture because the culture still looked like them, still acted like them. People outside the church and inside the church dressed the same. They talked the same. They had the same kind of family structures. And, and so nobody really thought anything of it. Now, it wasn't that nobody did. There were people that recognized it. But in the main, the church just didn't care because it, it felt at home. It still felt like they lived in a Christianized community and Christianized culture, even though the doctrines that were the foundation of the Christian's understanding of morality had been outright rejected in the first part of the 1900s uh, by academia and, and publishing houses and, and everything else. Then you move past the 1950s, you get into the 1960s, and another shift happens, right? I mean, you kind of see this. I wasn't alive then. Some of you were. You experienced this shift. Um, but but it, it's, you know, of course, this shift happens after the invention of, you know, movie cameras and TV cameras. So we still have pretty good records of this, right? Like I, I can go, I could punch it on my computer right here, you know, show me pictures from Woodstock and I'm going to know pretty quickly that a major shift, cultural shift had happened in America, right? Because there was a, there was almost a, an entire generational pushback against established morality, now, remember, the doctrine had already been rejected, but the, the morality remained for some time through the, through the, uh, you know, the World War period uh, into the 1950s. Everything still kind of looked the same. And then you get a generation um, who, uh, not to every person, because I recognize I'm talking to some people that are part of that generation, not to every person, but in the main began to really push back. And so now... You see, you see a counterculture that become that starts to become majority culture that is not does not have Christian ideals, and it, so then it starts to show up in music, then it starts to show up in television, then it starts to show up in movies. Right? It had shown up fifty years before in academia. Nobody noticed. Right? It showed up then because now it's on the radio. Now, when you turn on the television, it's wait, this is definitely different, right? And so it was in the 1960s that we really began to see this, this shift within, the, within mainstream culture away from things of the church. And then that ends up playing out in the, in the life of the church. So when, when 
when cultural establishment shifted, it didn't affect the church hardly at all. The church felt at home. Church attendance didn't stop because those people were in their ivory towers, right? They were in their publishing houses. They weren't in the main. But now you have an entire generation that was like, I'm not really sure this is for me. And so there was a drastic reduction in church attendance in the 19, um, following the late 60s into the 1970s. Church attendance began to drop off. Now, some of that bounced again, and there were some, there were some reasons for that. Um, but, but you began to see America in some parts of America start to walk away from Christianity altogether. Not just a rejection of doctrine, but also a rejection of, of Christian morality, which had defined our culture for so long. This, and again, it, it was experienced in, in, uh, in various ways in various parts of the country. So again, the American Southeast experienced this shift much more slowly than, than we would say you know, the, the West Coast and the Northeast, right? They experienced it a whole lot quicker. Uh, people in the cities experienced it a lot faster than people in the suburbs who experienced, well, once suburbs existed, um, and then who experienced it a lot faster than people in rural areas. And that's still happening today. So we watch, even today in 2020, we watch what's happening uh, being kind of suburbanite people on the outskirts of the Bible Belt and the Southeast. And we watch what's happening in places like San Francisco and we think, Holy cow, these people have lost their minds, right? Um, well, well, folks, the, if, if you just take where we are now and you go back a certain period of time, that's where they were. And they're just ahead of us. They're just shifting ahead of us. And, and some of these places are just better markers for, are, are just markers for what we will, we will one day be. By the time you get to the 1990s, in the main, in the United States, outside of rural places in the South, um, but in the main, in the United States, Christians no longer felt at home within their culture. And this, you probably, if you grew up, if you have any age on you at all, and you grew up in a Christian home, you probably experienced this shift a little bit. Now, it was unique for your area and what it looked like for you, but you, if you were alive in the 70s, even back into the 60s, and alive and aware about what was going on in life, right? And you probably saw some transition in the 80s. By the time you got to the 90s, you really started seeing the church go, wait, this, isn't, this doesn't look like what I, what I remember any, any longer. So really what happened was regardless of what the majority of the population believed, and by the way, the majority of the population through most of this and even still today would affirm not Christian doctrine, but would affirm some, we could call it Christianity light doctrine, some, some things like there is a God, there is a heaven, there is a hell. Uh, regardless of that, major culture institutions were set against a Christian worldview and have been for the better part of a century now. And that is not going to change, all right? The, 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 the things that we would think of as being cultural institutions, you know, so academia, um, media, th these things are in their minds, in, in, and, and we're talking about from presidents of these things, regardless of if they have their own what they'll say, well, my, personally, I am a 
Protestant or I'm a Catholic. Regardless of what they would personally say about themselves, they, they are a part of these institutions which have wholeheartedly rejected Christian doctrine and have now rejected Christian morality to where we now live in a world that is, does not look anything like what we think the Bible says a, a church should be. And I think that's an important distinction for us to make, that it doesn't mean that there are less Christians now than there was, let's say, in 1950. Maybe there is, maybe there is, I don't have that stat in front of me. But more people looked Christian. And because people looked Christian, Christians just didn't care. They were just like, I'm comfortable. Because they felt like they were part of the majority. No Christian anymore feels like they're part of the majority. Because we're just not, right? We, we, we have the, that ship has sailed and it sailed long ago, all right? So we, we need to understand that movement. So then how did the church respond? What did the church do? Well, at first the church didn't do anything. And again, because it, it didn't matter. The fact that Harvard had rejected Christian doctrine, and Harvard rejected Christian doctrine long before the early 1900s. But the fact that Harvard rejected Christian doctrine didn't matter to anybody sitting in a pew like Nansman River. Why? Because you weren't going to Harvard anyway. <laughs> you didn't care. <laughs> and I didn't care. We, we, we just didn't care, right? And even if we did, even if, even if once it got down to UVA or you know, wherever it was you were going to school, you were just, we just viewed, the church viewed colleges as a means to an end anyway. And we would tell students going off to college, hey, don't let them, don't let them, you know, change what you believe. And, you know, you may have that little talk, but in the main, the church didn't see a reason to try to correct culture because the culture was still kind of a reflection of the church, even though it didn't agree with its morality. Then the church began to see through the, after the sixties, the church began to see, wait, something's Something's different here. And so the big emphasis became on, came, came on evangelism. And here was the thought. And so this is kind of early stages of the American church beginning to address the shift in culture. The thought was through things like the Jesus movement. Do you remember the Jesus movement? Through, through things like this, um, late 60s, into the 70s, even into some of the 1980s, which then gave birth to another movement we're going to talk about in a minute, um, you, you saw the, the idea was this, what we need is more Christians. That's what will fix it. More Christians will fix this. That if we can get back to being the majority. So there was this huge emphasis on evangelism. Now, don't hear me say that a huge emphasis on evangelism is wrong. Okay. A huge emphasis on evangelism is always going to be a good thing. However, simply evangelizing for the sake of having more Christians is not, didn't right the ship. It actually, you saw a bump in Christianity in the 1970s. You, you, saw, you saw people coming to faith in Jesus, um, and yet it really didn't change. It didn't even change the trajectory. We, we continued as a culture in, into this shift. So then what happens is these models began to emerge and certain groups began to coalesce around some of the models. Now, in a moment, I'm going to talk about the models, but let me just talk about a couple of the models that we saw then, 1980s into the 1990s, once the church finally said, wait a second, I don't feel at home anymore. And there, was, there were two primary ways the church sought to address that. The first was what was known as the religious right. All right? Now, that was something everybody, if you grew up around Virginia, you knew about because the head of the religious right was, was right here, right? It was Jerry Falwell over at Liberty University, right? I mean, Jerry, Jerry was kind of the, 
He was the, he was the tip of the spear of, of the religious right. And the religious right saw, they recognized evangelism alone isn't going to get this. Now there was evangelism in the religious, in the movement of the religious right. But the idea wasn't, hey, we're, we're not going to be able to change everything just by making more people Christians. What we need is power. That's what's going to change things. Influence is going to, is going to change things. So it was, a, it, was a, it was seeking transformation through the means of political power. Let's influence politicians. Let's influence Congress. Let's influence the president. Let's, let's run people for these things. It was, right, it claimed a moral majority. You remember that phrase, the moral majority. It claimed that, whether that was ever true or not, I'm not sure. Uh, but it, it claimed that and kind of built on people's fears of a cultural shift. Kind of parallel to that group, seeking kind of the same ends, but just through a completely different means, and really arising at the same time, arising in the late 1980s, was, was what was known as the seeker-sensitive movement within the church. Now, the religious right wasn't necessarily a church-driven movement. It was a Christian-driven movement. It was Christian people, but the change was sought outside of the church. Seeker-sensitive movement was, was inside the church. But here's what it did. Instead of saying, let's change culture by, by power, it said, let's just adapt to the culture. If the culture has changed... Why don't we just remove every barrier we possibly can? And this became widely popular in, particularly both of these became widely popular within, even within our own denomination, within the Southern Baptist Convention and many other evangelical denominations. You saw a mixture of these two ideas. Sometimes they were espousing both at the same time within, within churches. So the seeker-sensitive movement wanted to remove all cultural barriers. They just didn't want to talk about culture. If you had given over to some type of materialistic culture in the, you know, in the 1980s when you know, money was king and you'd given yourself over to that or, or any, anything else, we just said, well, all right, because what we want to do is we want to appeal to, we want the church to, be, to become attractive to non-Christian people, right? And right now the church isn't attractive to non-Christian people because it's too different for them. Not that the church changed, but that the culture changed. And the people in the culture changed. And so for the church to reach the culture, the church got to do what? Change. Now, both of those reflect uh, our, our ways that churches like ours, it's not ways that every church processed this, but it's ways churches like ours process this. Most evangelical churches, most Southern Baptist churches, um, fought through some of those things or got caught up in some of those movements. And some people still are, we're still seeing, I think, some of the ramifications of both of those now 30 years um, into, in, into the movements. But those movements ended up, we can now categorize them, I think, a little better. All right, so that, that's, what, that's what's happened. That's the history lesson. So now let's just ask this question. How is the church, and not just the evangelical church, but the church is in the main now, because just about every church, whether they know it or not, has a way that they seek to engage culture or not engage culture. But they have a way that they seek to relate to culture, either directly, indirectly, or, or by, by rejection. Um, this wasn't necessary when the culture looked like the church. But now that the culture no longer looks like the church, 
and we're 70 years on from that in some places, 40 or 50 years on from it in others, every church now has their way of doing it. And all of those kind of fit pretty well into one of four models. But all four of these models find their roots in something that was actually written right as this transition was taking place back in the 1950s. There was a guy named Richard Newburn who uh, was a liberal theologian, okay, uh, taught for a couple of decades at, at Yale Theology. He, he, but he is, as far as you know, modern times, 1950s, 1940s, 1950s go, he was probably the leading um, Christian on the subject of like Christian ethics. And so he was thinking about culture long before anybody else was thinking about culture. All right. There's a lot that I would disagree with this guy over, but he actually, even within main, he was a mainline Protestant. He would certainly fit within, um, in that time, what was known as, um, classical liberalism, classical liberal theology, but he recognized where it was going. He even recognized where it was going. And, and, to his credit, called them out. So where we think of mainline churches today, this guy in 1950 said this, I like this. He, he, he's talking about where the liberal church is going. And he says, they're going to a God without wrath who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through administrations of a Christ without a cross. So he's exactly right. So, I mean, this is a liberal theologian that recognizes the ultimate end of where they're going is a church that looks nothing like the Bible at all, <laughs> that, that, that has a God that doesn't look like the Bible, that, that, that has a Jesus that doesn't look like the Bible, that has a kingdom of heaven that doesn't look like the Bible. So to his credit, this guy was a really good judge of both the church and, and the culture. And he presented five, and I'm going to try to be distinct with these. I'm going to move through this really quickly. He presented five views, not necessarily on the church, but on Christ. How, how throughout history in varying ways and, and within different biblical arguments, you can say, this is how Christ relates to culture. The first one is Christ against culture. This is simply to just withdraw. Christ has nothing to do with culture and Christ wants me to have nothing to do with culture. The second one is Christ of culture. This is a position of accommodation. It seeks to affirm works of good, any work of good in culture as works of God. So if something good is happening, something we could judge as good, or even something that culture itself judges as good, and we're going to get back to this when we get to the modern models, and I'm going to, I'll name names when we get there, okay, but this is still happening today. This is happening, the culture judges as good, and so you could say, well, then, then it's of Christ. If it's good, it's of Christ. It's an, a model of accommodation. The third one is Christ above culture. Really, this is just a synthetic understanding of, of building on the good of culture. So it's very similar. And, and in a moment, when I present the modern models, is we're only going to have four because the second one and third one here of Newburn's models really come together in one. One sees all good within culture as of Christ, the other sees any good within culture as something in which we can, Christ can build on towards good. The fourth one is Christ and culture in paradox with one another, and that is it's a dualistic understanding that that Christ is sacred and culture is secular. We dealt with a little bit of 
sacred and secular last week when we were talking about, um, you know, the, the, about absolute truth, you remember, and that, that absolute truth in our culture today exists in two realms, the sacred and the secular, and one is absolute, it's demanded to be absolute of everyone, and the other is optional, is relative for everyone, and we say no, that's not what the Bible says. Um, well, that, that mirrors this. It's not exactly the same thing, but it does, it does mirror this. And we'd say, okay, Jesus has, has his kingdom and the world has its kingdom. Um, the last one is Christ's transforming culture. This is conversionist. It, it's seeking to transform every part of culture, that we want to transform media. We want to transform government. We want to transform music. We want to transform entertainment. We want to transform the family. We want to transform education. We want everything seeking to be transformed, all right? So in the 1950s, he recognized this. Before the church even really, in America at least, needed to do it, and in some of what he was doing, he was looking at Europe and seeing what was happening over there and recognizing that it was coming. But in the 1950s, he writes about this from a, from a classical liberal perspective and says, this is, this is, this is going to be important. Come to find out, it was very important for us because now every church has to decide because you can no longer bury your head in the sand and think that our world is still in any way resembles basic biblical morality because it just doesn't anymore. And so we, we've got to pick one of these. We, and not necessarily you got to pick one of them, okay? I mean, that's not where we're going to end up. Um, but, but we're going to tend to, based off of beliefs and practices and values and some other things, we're going to tend towards one direction over another. So then we get to modern models. Now, I always, I always try to be really honest with you when I, re- when I show you books, okay? Um, what I'm about to tell you came out of this book. Um, I like reading Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor, Redeemer Church in uh, New York. Keller's written some excellent books. This is one of those. It is an excellent book. Um, if you have trouble falling asleep at night, it would be a great book for you to read. Okay. My fear of holding that book up is that somebody's going to buy it and you're never going to buy another book I recommend again. Folks, this is, it looks like a textbook on purpose. Okay. It's called Center Church. Center Church by Tim Keller. Um, doing balanced gospel-centered ministry in your city. Now, Keller spent a generation pastoring in New York, and it's written from that perspective, okay? Um, so this isn't necessarily a book we're recommending, but I'm, I'm giving credit where it's due. Everything I'm going to say for the next 20 minutes came right out of this book because Tim Keller is probably within evangelical Christianity, even outside of that, I mean, in, in, the, in Protestant mainline, I would say, Keller is probably the best judge of the relationship of culture and how to preach into culture. Like there, the fact that that dude can preach in New York city the way he does. And they, they've had such a success, had such a successful ministry for so long is, is absolutely incredible. So a lot of respect for Tim Keller. Don't always agree with him. Don't agree with everything in this book, but I borrowed heavily. Okay. And Keller presents four models, all of them really based off of Newberg's Newburn's model. All right except for he combines two because they really need to combine two. And so what Keller does is he, he just looks at the modern landscape. Now, he wrote this, I think, in 2011. So we're 10 years on. It'd be interesting to see from Keller if there's any adopting or any adaptation that he would make. Um, but in 2011, he, he looked out at the landscape 
and saw how churches were doing this. And he just settled on everybody's doing it. Everybody's think, everybody is practicing this, whether you're thinking about it or not. Your church and my church and every church, whether it's a city church, a suburban church, or a rural church, is either intentionally or from an unintentional kind of de facto position interacting with their culture. Maybe they know it, maybe they don't. And they're probably doing it in one or two ways. And then Keller really helps think about how, how even denominationally and within certain doctrinal strands, these things are playing out to the extreme. And those are some of the ones that I'm going to give examples of because they, they help us see it, all right? So let's start with transformational which was the fifth one of uh, Newburn's, but it's, it's where Keller starts. And this is Christ transforming. Sometimes people would say Christ redeeming culture. That the role of the church, and, and particularly as it relates to the culture that the church finds themselves in, is that the, the church as a congregation um, and the individual members thereof it, so as individual people, everything they do, within the culture should be about bringing the culture back towards scripture. It's about redeeming it, right? Transforming it into what Christ wants it to be. So the two main tenets of this work are actually based off of what a Dutch theologian had uh, written after Newburn wrote it, but before Keller wrote this, right? And that's this. this these, are, these are the two main tenets of a guy named uh, Kuiper. In every sphere of life, Christians should think and act Christian. And that seems like a very simple statement, right? In every sphere of life, whether you're at church, at home, at work, at play, those are kind of the four main spheres of our lives, right? In every, every sphere of our life, we should think and act Christian. The second is, if a Christian is conscious of his beliefs and lives by them in, in the spheres of his life, then those beliefs will affect everything he does. All right? So there's no sphere of my life that I shouldn't act like a Christian. And if I truly believe what I say I believe, and if I put those beliefs into practice, then I'm going to live like a Christian in every sphere of my life and it's, everything's going to be affected by it, all right? So then with this in mind, secular work becomes very important. Within this model, secular work is just as important as ministry work. So uh, a doctor, an engineer, a janitor, a school teacher is just as important as a pastor, a missionary, a church planter, right? Now you're seeing things that we probably affirm in, in, in some of this. Um, but th that's what this, this transformational model says. Hey, look, it, it's not about what you do. It's about how you do it. You're supposed to go and do that. As in, so if you're an accountant, go be the best Christian accountant you can be, right? And, and allow your Christianity to influence the way you account. Is that the right verb for what an accountant does? I don't know. So then they assign a high value to excellence in the secular world, particularly as it relates to public influence. Because remember, the idea is to transform, 
isn't it? That's what, these, that's what this model is. Let's transform culture. So if we're going to transform culture, we need people out there really doing this well. Now, you see this, and, and I, let's just all recognize our church and churches like ours, we don't fully fit in this model. Um, some of you probably will uh, appreciate this model more than the other three. And um, this will come out, here's a way this comes out even without you knowing it, right? Um, you'll get really excited when you find out a politician, a musician, an actor is a believer. Some of you don't, some of you don't care about that, but, but a lot of you do. And somebody will mention, you know, somebody who is, you know, who, who's an actor and, and, and you'll say, oh, you, you know, they're a believer, don't you? It's almost like we got one. <laughs> because we, because this model greatly values that, because we see that as influence, right? So because it, because we're trying to change society, we need influencers in society. The main opponent here, the 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 problem is secularism. That's what people see. Is is people see they they see the secular world as bad and in need of transformation, even if it's neutral. It needs to be transformed, all right? So, so what you have here is you have, obviously, the religious right fits, fits on this scale, who would be conservative on the far right. Um, you have in, within uh, smaller mainline Protestants, even within some evangelical uh, realms, you have, you have what... I'm going to use a term here, and it, it kind of applies to two groups, and I don't know how to delineate between the two groups. So it's neo-Calvinism. It's not the new, it's not the young, restless, and reformed, if you understand that terminology, but it's what existed before that. And they're kind of political center left, even, but they still kind of agree we're trying to transform it. They're just going about the transformation a little differently. Uh, on the far end of this spectrum would be something like a... Uh, uh, People, people that say, we need to be a, an actual Christian nation. Like, we need to put Jesus and the Bible in the Constitution, okay? Trying to, trying to develop a theocracy. We need to transform everything to the point where, you know, Jesus in the Bible is everything that we're doing, even within the, even within the secular world. The problems with this model is it really ends up reducing worldview, our subject for this semester, into some bullet points, some like, all right, we do these things, we don't do these things, and that's my worldview. It really doesn't allow for what I talked about last week with truth, with nuance and discussion and the recognition, and, and the recognition that some things are just difficult, all right? It underappreciates the church and overappreciates influence in politics. It exalts a person with power over, and it thinks that person with power I mean, this was the problem with the religious right. The religious right in the, of the 1980s and 1990s believed that Jerry Faldwell could do more for the sake of the kingdom of God than a local church could do. And that's not a biblical position to take, right? And I'm not saying that's, that, that was just kind of, he was kind of the creation of this, of this movement. And he wasn't the only one. And there are still guys out there today. There, there's an overconfidence, even a hubris, uh, concerning the ability to know what scripture demands in nearly every societal circumstance. People that are completely sold out to this, uh, 
they know, they're really, because again, it's bullet points. And so I, oh no, I know how we're supposed to act on this. There's no opportunity for fact finding and nuance in a discussion because they already know. The ultimate danger of this is, is power. And, and we're seeing, we're seeing guys in this still today fall from, you know, positions of, of elevation in a lot of people's minds because power often corrupts, right? And, um, and, and this model lends itself towards power. Second, relevance. This is Christ of and Christ above culture. So it was those two that are combined. This model, those with this model, believe God is at work in cultural movements that has nothing to do with Christianity. It's very optimistic about culture and cultural trends. It emphasizes the common good and human flourishing. So in today's world, these are the churches that think everything should be focused on justice issues. Now, don't hear me say that the church shouldn't ever focus on justice issues. We should absolutely do justice, as the scripture says. We should believe in that. But it cannot be the only thing the church does. There are, there are other things the church does as it seeks to accomplish the mission of God in this world. But for, but for the extremes of this model, social justice is, is it. it is, it's elevating man and elevating the common good of uh, everyone. It rarely ever talks about a Christian worldview because to talk about a Christian worldview for them would assume too much of a gap between what the culture is practicing and what the Bible actually says. It sees little difference between how individual Christians act and how the church should operate. So we have to see a distinction in scripture of some things are individual mandates for a Christian to do and some things are mandates for the church to do. Well, those within this model won't separate that. If an individual Christian is supposed to give to the poor, then the church better give to the poor, right? That, that the, these, are, these commands are equal um, no matter if they're individualistic or, or corporate. The problems with these models, let me tell you who's, who's in this. You, you know who's in this. The, the kind of first stage of this is, is that seeker-sensitive movement. Those people that, hey, let's try to meet culture where it is, Right? And they ended up becoming, that movement ended up becoming something in the early 2000s known as the emerging church, which is really outside of places like California and a few other places has really played itself out. Um, but the, the emerging church was this kind of movement to kind of be the, the anti-church. It was strange. Like they were meeting in bars and like it was a really strange, like anything we could do to not look like a church, that's what, that's what we're, we're going to do. But they became bedfellows with, with mainline liberal Protestants because mainline liberal Protestantism was also focused on social issues and justice and meeting people's needs and elevating humanity. And so they kind of joined hands in some of those things. The extreme of this is liberation theology, which is kind of a corporate understanding of, of salvation um, that as 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 you know, oppressors are dealt with and people find freedom, that that is the understanding of salvation, not true justification. The problem with this model is the church becomes very dated as culture moves on and culture will always move faster than the church. And so as soon as a church says, let's adapt this to adapt to the culture, guess what's going to happen? 
They're no longer going to be relevant. Like six months later, they're not relevant anymore. Why? Because culture moved. And so these people kind of chase culture. The church becomes, the culture becomes normative instead of the scripture. It focus, the, the focus shifts away from the gospel and towards what, what are cultural needs. The church ends up losing its distinctiveness. It becomes so much like the world that nobody even notices that you're the church anymore. You're just another group of people trying to do, trying to do good. Right? Third, countercultural. This is Christ against culture. This group does not see God working in anything other than the church. There's no good outside of, outside of the church. This system focuses not on changing culture. They would probably view culture in a similar way the secular culture is the similar way of those that want to transform it. Except for these guys don't want to transform it. They want to get away from it. They want to separate from it. So the whole system is focusing on separation. The church needs to avoid looking um, for ways to be relevant. It needs to avoid any interaction at all with the transformation of, of society it tends to, churches that are subscribed to this wholly, all right, tend to view all other churches in error. That, that's how they think about pretty much everybody else. Everybody else is wrong, and I'm right. Um, because you've not remained as pure from the culture as we have, right? And And sometimes that's a biblical understanding, and sometimes it's a completely extra-biblical argument that they make. They, they believe all church, that church should follow Christ outside the camp and only engage the marginalized. So it's not that these people don't engage, but they would, look, they would look to the ministry of Christ and see the majority of the people that Christ engaged were the marginalized. It was people pushed outside of society, right? The poor, the prostitute. And so these churches will often have ministries, but when you look closely at them, they're, they're really mirroring a ministry of, of Christ as it relates to the marginalized of society, which they feel marginalized. And so this isn't reaching society. This is reaching those that society has rejected. Now, I would put, there are some, Bab, there are some churches with Baptists in the name just to deal with our own, and even probably within the Southern Baptist Convention, who fit within this? I would definitely say churches that are known as independent fundamental Baptist churches, IFB churches, most often that would, would uh, exclusively use and think everyone should exclusively use the, the 1611 King James Bible, um, uh, that you know, preachers need to preach in a black suit and a white shirt, and you know, that these people are certainly going to, to fit into this. Everybody else is is wrong. We're, we're not going to be a part of that. Uh, but then it, it moves quickly towards groups. You, as I was talking about this, I'm sure you pictured, right? The extremes of this, the Amish, right? The, those, those who have just completely separated themselves and are, and are now living. And you can get so far down on this, on this spectrum that um, you, you almost fail to see salvation for what it truly is, all right? So here's, here's some of the problems. I mean, it's highly pessimistic about 
church, the church's ability to change the culture. It doesn't see the church really as having influence in the world. It demonizes secular and even the sacred if it's not their version of it. So government is always bad. Business is always bad. The military is, is always bad, right? Now, again, that's not in every one of these cultures, but or in every one of these churches that, are, that would fit within this model. But the further you go, the, the more of that you see. It fails to contextualize at all. I mean, just almost completely fails to um, recognize that a church in this place may have to be different, right? What did Paul say? I've become all things to all men so that by all means, some might come to know the Lord, right? Completely fails to do any of that whatsoever and thinks the way that our church looks is the way that every church should look forever, And then it fails to evangelize, even on doctrinal grounds sometimes. You can get so far out on this that you you don't really even see salvation as the Bible sees it. The fourth one is known as two kingdoms. This is Christ and culture and paradox from the previous list. It agrees with the transformational model and a high view of work. So, right, work's important. But disagrees with how it's done. Someone in this model would say, you know, there's no Christian way to swing a hammer. The transformational model, remember, everything you do, you're doing for the glory of God. And so if I'm going to swing this hammer, I'm going to swing this hammer like a Christian should swing this hammer. Well, I mean, sure, that's a little far-fetched, isn't it? But the, these, these people would say, okay, maybe, maybe there, there's not a Christian, maybe there's not a Christian way to swing a hammer and a secular way to swing a hammer. Maybe there's just a way to swing a hammer or to be an accountant or or whatever. Um, It sees neutral secular government. So it it views the secular government, as long as it remains neutral, as the way God intended it. Two Kingdoms says God didn't intend, outside of Israel itself in the Old Testament, God did not intend for government to be Christianized. That government is supposed to do what Paul says government is supposed to do, right? Reward good and punish evil. And as long as it can do that neutrally, it doesn't need Christianity to inform it. It can just do it. There's, it sees no distinct Christian worldview or even Christian culture because those things don't belong to the secular kingdom. There's, there's the kingdom of the church and Christ, and there's the kingdom of the world and secular and we don't really need a world because if I'm operating, and you would operate in both. So if I'm going to the courthouse and paying my taxes, I'm going to do that not as a Christian, just as a person, as a citizen of the secular kingdom. If I go to church, then I, so my worldview only exists within that, that kingdom. it really sees not much improvement or even need for improvement within society. And it sees the job of the church is not to, say, to change society, but just to be the church. Our goal is not to worry about them, whether they look like us or not, no matter what they're doing. Our goal is just to be us. And we really ought to focus on the purity of us instead of the purity of them. Um, while there's actually some close in on the, you know, not in, in the far outreaches, but close in, there, there's some good things that, that are senior and I think some biblical things. Um, 
the, the far reaches of this uh, find, mainly find themselves within uh, certain sects of Lutheranism. This is big within certain what are known as synods. The Lutheran church is divided into synods, and they often believe varying, varying things. Um, and then also within reform, like hyper-reformed communities um, in certain places that, that, would, that would just see themselves as separate, and not separate like the other group sees them as separate, but just they're them and we're us and we're going to do our thing and not, not really worry about them. The issue is, as I was talking about all four of those, hopefully you heard something good. Hopefully you heard something and went, well, maybe we ought to be like that. Maybe, maybe from each of these models, right, we, we ought to be able to say there's something good to be learned. And, and there is, I believe there is, from, from the um, uh, transformational model, there's a distinctive worldview that Christians, I mean, that's why we're teaching on Christian worldview, that Christians are supposed to see the world distinctly. We're supposed to be different, right? From the relevance model, there's, there's common good that we're, the church needs to work for the common good of man, that when we see injustice, we should speak up both individually and corporately, that from the, um, uh, from the counterculture view, it's, it's that the church is different. The church is distinct. We, we can't marry the church to the culture so much that we lose our distinction. And in that two kingdoms view that, that we do need to recognize that the Bible doesn't speak about how to swing a hammer. It doesn't speak about everything about practice in our world. And so we need to do our best to do as good as we can in the secular world uh, without necessarily Christianizing, oh, we just have some hum- practice, some humility, right? There's not an answer for everything. So how do we do that as, as a, and I know I've got one minute, I'm going to go just a couple minutes long. Um, how do we do that? How do we then recognizing there's some good in all of them, maybe more good in some than others, but none of these has the corner on the way the church should do it. It's the way many churches are doing it. Many churches could be, and even denominations, could be pegged squarely in, in one of these four corners. But if we're to come to the center and recognize, wait, there's good here, there's good here, there's good here, how, how do we do that? Well, we need to constantly draw ourselves back to the center. We, we need to don't out of hand reject something that a church we disagree with is doing just because we disagree with them. It may be good what they're doing, and we should consider it. So we draw ourselves back to the center. But it's also important that we know that we have a realistic understanding of culture. It's why I kind of began the way that I did. In this book, he argues for what's known as seasons of culture or seasons of society, that, that culture goes through, as it relates to Christianity, you know, a winter, a, 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 a spring, a summer, a fall, and a winter. And, you know, in, in one of those, Christianity's growing within the culture, and another, Christianity's fully accepting the culture, and in one of them, Christianity's kind of falling away, and another one, Christianity is outright in winter, right? Completely divorced. But we're, if we're not in late fall, we're in early winter, okay? That's where we are. And probably some of these models work better depending on what the season around you is. And so having a really realistic understanding of what's happening is important. Finally, for a church and even for individuals, there's questions that we must ask about our own values and gifting. 
And we have to recognize that we as a church, me as a pastor, you as individual members of our, of our congregation may not be as good at doing some things as another church would be. And we need to be fine with that. We need to be willing to say, hey, this is going to be our niche. This is going to be our area and not reject what someone else is doing. Um, we're, we're far too quick to be critical of another church. Now, there are times that we need to be critical of other churches. There are, there are hills to die on, okay? One of them for me um, was I made a commitment nine months ago. I can't believe it was that long, 10 months ago now. I am not going to be publicly critical of anything a church does as it relates to the pandemic. I've been able to keep that. There's been times it's been hard. <laughs> There's been times I wanted to say, you people are crazy, stop it. But I didn't. Because I, I, don't, I don't think it's healthy that we're just so quick to be critical of what somebody else is doing. Because, because all, for the simple fact that they're doing it differently than where we landed. So I always want to look for positive ways that other churches are doing and recognize that they're doing that based off of their value and their gifting. We're doing what we're doing based off of our value and gifting, and, and that, that's okay. So, so, and that's, that's okay both on a personal and on a corporate level. So we have to find our place in this. But where our place can't be is the extreme. We can't be the Amish building a camp and not ever dealing with any, anyone else. We can't be the people saying, let's rewrite the Constitution and, and you know, put, put Bible on every page and, and put a you know, put a pastor in charge of the country. We, we can't be the people that move so far away from gospel proclamation and towards helping people that we completely forget that we have the truth of salvation that goes far beyond any justice issue. Uh, we, we can't be the people that so divide into two different kingdoms that the secular just gets to be the secular and the, and the uh, sacred gets to be the sacred and never did the two overlap because they're certainly overlapping in there. So we want to pull to the middle, but we want to pull to the middle recognizing we're probably going to tend in one way. So our church, because of our denomination, because of our beliefs, because of kind of who we are and what our history is, we tend to be more of a, uh, a church that's going to seek to redeem and, trans and, and transform culture. We're going to try to speak into those things. We can't do it in everything, right? And that's probably where most of you probably best identified with that one, but not fully. And you probably saw some pieces of some others. So what we ought to do is let those other pieces kind of pull us back towards the center now. So when we start talking about these, these individual things, I'll probably bring some of these back up and say, this is how these varying positions would relate to this. And, and how can we learn from how they're relating from it, even if we would disagree kind of from how they got there, and then get, get kind of a center position, a position that's more centered on the full biblical teaching than just the verses we like or, or, or want to be. So I hope that's helpful for you. I know it's been a lot, kind of opened a fire hose an hour ago and I'm just now turning it off. And so I'm gonna come back to some of these things. Um, you really could, I know I downplayed it. You, you guys are all smart enough. Just don't try to read a whole bunch of it at once. But there's good questions. Tim, Tim Keller has such good questions. There's good questions at the end. Like, it'd be something fun. But it'll take, you, um, it'll take you six months, a year. I mean, just spend some time in it. That'd, that'd be helpful. Um, because he, he goes into a lot of practical. He gets through this and, and really gets into a lot of practical about here's how a church has to go about making some of these decisions that I'm not going to deal with uh, and certainly don't have time because I'm already five minutes over. All right? So let me pray for us some of this. God, thank you.
um, that, that these are challenging times, but uh, with challenging times comes the opportunity for gospel proclamation. So let us do that. Let us be a church, God, that doesn't run to the extremes, um, but, but sees value in uh, all of the scripture influencing our lives and our worldview and how we relate to the culture. Uh, we pray, God, that more people would hear the gospel and believe that more people would uh, look for ways to influence maybe not our world, maybe not our nation, maybe not our state, but we'll look to influence their neighborhood, their family, their group of friends, their workplace for the sake of the kingdom of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for joining us online. We'll see you next week.